Greetings. Today's date is a blustery and snowy February 2nd, Groundhog's Day of 2022, and welcome to the second episode of the Commodore Chronicles podcast. Today's episode will feature two incredibly ambitious titles, Raid on Bungling Bay and Project Firestart. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy. Commodore Chronicles, my name is Adam, bringing you C64-centric news, reviews, hardware guides, and most of all, your feedback. And you know what? The last episode, your feedback came in big. So uh, I collected over 100 comments and opinions, and thank you so much for your support. And, And for those of you who are new to the program, here's how you can chime in. The Commodore Chronicles is very much driven by your feedback. At the end of every episode, the titles being covered in the next episode will be announced. Subsequent posts will be made to twitter.com forward slash c64chronicles and facebook.com forward slash c64chronicles where feedback can be submitted, as well as by email at commodorechronicles at gmail.com. And now that we've got those details out of the way, let's check out the news. News item number one, Robot Jet Action is released by C64 Portal. Robot Jet Action is a classic arcade-style platform game programmed by Tomas Karian Mielnik. The game takes place in five different retro game-style planets where evil robots have come to steal their diamonds, coins, stars, and other gems from their old games. You're just a little robot, though, with a big task. Go from planet to planet, retrieve all their currency, and defeat the planet's boss. Robot Jet Action features 35 levels, 5 retro-inspired planets, 5 boss fights, and uses the C64 high-res graphics mode. It's a sharp little title that can be had by naming your own price at Carrion, C-A-R-R-I-O-N, 64.itch.io forward slash robot dash jet dash action. News item number two, Rogue 64 from Badger Punch Games is now shipping. Rogue 64 is an adaptation and reimagining of the 1980 procedurally generated dungeon-crawling RPG classic Rogue. It was released a few months back, but now has a physical release that could be purchased at www.bitmatsoft.co.uk. The game can also be purchased digitally at badgerpunch.itch.io forward slash Rogue64. News item number three. ArlaSoft releases a cartridge file with all 24 of his C64 titles in one package. I've been a big fan of ArlaSoft since he released his C64 port of Megamania back in September of 2020. He's since released ports of Taz, Freeway, Fast Food, 
and the incredible C64 versions of Galega and Galaxian DX. In this package, you get all of his releases for the incredible price of free. He's an incredibly valued newer programmer in the C64 scene, so consider sending him a couple dollars by supporting any of his titles at arlagames.itch.io. News item number four, Puzzle Bobble gets ported to the C64. Puzzle Bobble is also known as Bust a Move and was originally released in the arcades in 1994 for the Neo Geo MVS system. It's an action puzzler that I was originally introduced to in the very late 90s or early 2000s as an unofficial MS-DOS conversion based on the Super Nintendo release. You play as Bub and Bob of Bubble Bobble fame, lining up groups of three or more bubbles to make them pop and eventually clear the screen. This new C64 version is true to the original, even featuring a faux Neo Geo MVS startup screen, and also has the original digital voices as well. You can download this at csdb.dk and search for Puzzle Bobble. I'm Kevin Nealon, and that's news to me. And now for the second edition of our C64 Hardware Guide. Last episode, we started a C64 Hardware Guide exploring the hardware options a Commodore user could use today. Last episode was about the C64 itself, but today we're going to explore six modern drive implementations. After 30 years, much of our magnetic media is still functioning surprisingly, but those days are sadly being numbered as we speak. I've personally lost dozens of discs and cassettes to demagnetization and rot. And then when it comes to the C64, the, the 1541 and the C2N drives can be super finicky, often requiring various service on a regular basis. Read head cleaning, drive alignment, drive rail lubrication, and drive speed calibration are all examples of a service that might be required of a 1541 from time to time. I've only really owned one really well-functioning 1541. Four others over the years have required repair and various services. Those repairs and services Media decay and the absurd pricing of most of the working software leads me down the road of researching modern drive alternatives. Of the six options here, I've owned three of them and have experience with one other. I hope to one day get my hands on the other two. Option number one. I got my start with the SD to IEC and one specifically called the S-Drive 1564. It was from a vendor on eBay from Sweden. It had the typical SD to IEC functioning, but also had an LCD display that allowed for drive navigation and displayed which D64 or program image was attached. It was housed in a larger case than normal, but didn't really have any additional functions other than an LCD. 
Today, the best source for an SD to IEC is the Future Was 8-Bit, and there's also a couple vendors on eBay and Etsy that have combined an Epix fast load and an SD to IEC in one PCB. For pros, the SD to IEC is easily the cheapest option, and it can also be one of the fastest as well. It's well documented, and it's fairly easy to use and has a really good community behind it. For cons, it's just an IEC device and is not 100% 1541 compatible. It also doesn't support multi-load games. So some of those popular multi-load games include the Epix game series and Skate or Die. And some of those games with internal fast loaders, those can pose a problem as well. It can be uber frustrating for those that live in NTSC areas, North America, because much of the development has come from PAL territories. Option number two. That leads us to the second option I chose, a Pi 1541 by Commodore Forever, which was a great Commodore-focused online store that closed in early 2021. John's Pi 1541s and the Atom power supplies are greatly missed. But most Pi 1541s are easily found on Etsy and eBay from a vendor known as 8-Bit Phoenix. And they offer a Pi Zero 1541 and Epic's fast load combination cart. And really all the Pi 1541s use some form of Raspberry Pi single computer or another. For pros, the Pi 1541 is 100% 1541 compatible and it's also quite inexpensive at the moment. The full-size Pi 1541 features an interface through an HDMI port of the Raspberry Pi where you can view the actual software working. Once up and running, it's incredibly easy to use. But on the con side, the setup can be rather labor-intensive and quite confusing. The initial integration with the Epix fast load was a bit broken out of the box and required modification of the OS config file, but I do believe that has been fixed in, in later releases. The cable situation can get severely out of hand if you use a full 1541 Pi. The Pi 1541 was a great option for me, but then I started to have extreme reliability issues with my C64s, and that led me to take the ultimate plunge, an ultimate 64 FPGA board by Gideon's Logic Architectures of the Netherlands. But today, we'll just be covering the 1541 Ultimate 2 Plus, which serves as a drive cartridge in even an REU implementation. For pros, the 1541 Ultimate features tons of hardware implementations, including full 1541 100% compatibility, a 100 megabit Ethernet port for Telnet or FTP purposes, um, multiple USB ports, a real-time clock, easy flash support, 
1750 and 1764 RAM expansion unit supports and an on-screen configuration. That REU support is big right now because everybody is really wanting to play Sonic the Hedgehog on original hardware. So this thing is really a Swiss army knife of features. For cons, it's not available due to the chip shortage and supply chain issues that we've been having. Even then, the order process is difficult and lengthy. It took nearly three months to finally receive mine after ordering, and it's rather expensive, but completely worth it. For shelf now not count, neither count now to, accepting that now and proceed to free. Another option that's really solid that I have some experience with but never owned is the Easy Flash series of carts, specifically the newest design, the Easy Flash 3. Unlike SD to IEC, Pi 1541, and 1541 Ultimate, they're not really a disk drive emulation, but more of a cartridge one. But a large number of games and programs have been ported over to its format. For pros, the loading times are easily the quickest, and the file sizes can be quite large as well, so you can have a bigger program. For example, the 2011 port of Prince of Persia by Mr. Sid is a half of a megabyte in size, and that's huge by Commodore 64 standards. It's ready to try out directly out of the box and has an excellent UI. And it's quite fairly priced as well. For cons, it doesn't feature any disk drive implementation. Not everything is ported over to the Easy Flash world, but if you wanted access to all of the titles the C64 has to offer, this might not be the best option. Five is right out. Now into uncharted waters. The Backbit Pro by E.V. Solomon is a multiple computer compatible solution featuring instant loading. It features compatibility with various Commodore, Atari, and Sinclair home computers with support for the TI-99-4A and Tandy color computer coming soon. It's a very ambitious offering that will be worth her asking price if it delivers on its promises. I'm going to save my reservations for when I experience one. I have nothing cute for number six. Also in those uncharted waters is the Kung Fu Flash by Kim Jorgensen. This is another one of those ambitious options for the Commodore 64 featuring disk image, program, and various cartridge format support. One aside is that it doesn't support disk swapping at the moment. Also, if you live in North America, NTSC support is in beta at the moment, but for $60 USD, it's quite the convincing package. It's got a lot of support right now from the Commodore 64 community as well. That's the fact, Jack! That's the fact, Jack! In conclusion, if this were 2019, I'd have a completely different answer for you right now. 
However, it's 2022, and this chip shortage leads me in the direction of the Pi 1541 and Epic's fast load option. Any other time, I would push you straight in to Gideon's Logic 1541 Ultimate 2 Plus. Man, that's a mouthful. If Gideon gets to make them again, I would get in on that as soon as possible. And on our next edition, we'll explore display options from Commodore monitors to consumer CRTs and the dreaded LCD option. But enough of the technicals. Let's get to some reviews. And now for something completely different. Radon Bungling Bay is a helicopter-based two-dimensional shoot-em-up released in 1984, published by Broderbund and programmed by the renowned Will Wright. It was later ported to the NES and MSX. Broderbund is an epic C64 publisher responsible for such greats as Choplifter, Karateka, Loadrunner, David's Midnight Magic, and the Carmen Sandiego series. Will Wright is the creator of The Sims and also The Sim City games, the engine of this game being the starting point for his development of the original Sim City. In multiple interviews, Will will fondly recall enjoying crafting the level environments of Raid Over Bungling Bay over the combat elements. He would later form the software company Maxis to fully realize his creations. Raid on Bungling Bay has a surprisingly deep storyline behind it. The rear of the box reads, On a small planet in a remote corner of the universe, the evil bungling empire has created the most fearsome enemy you will ever face, the War Machine. Directed by an artificial intelligence bent on total conquest, it's a complex of factories scattered throughout six heavily defended islands. Day and night, these factories churn out an endless armada of remote-controlled weapons of doom. Their ultimate aim is clear, the final destruction of civilization as we know it. Before all of humankind is crushed beneath the Empire's iron heel, one faint hope remains. A single, highly mobile raider might, just might, be able to penetrate the bungling defenses. Only a fighter pilot of enormous skill and strategic savvy could dare attempt such a mission. We turn to you in our hour of desperate need. At dawn, you move. From an offshore carrier base, you will command a very fast but very vulnerable helicraft. You must launch a surgical strike at the very heart of the war machine. You will be attacked by every weapon known to man and some not yet dreamed of. Somehow, you must carpet bomb the bungling factories into obliteration before they complete their ultimate weapon. We wish you all the luck in the galaxy. You'll need it. The action in Raid Over Bungling Bay begins on your aircraft, where your helicraft will be repaired and rearmed. With the press of the fire button, your helicraft takes flight. You can land again by hovering still over the aircraft carrier and pressing the fire button once. The rest of the helicraft controls are as follows. Up and down, or I and K, can fly you forwards and backwards. 
left and right, or J and L to rotate left and right. Fire your cannons with the joystick button or the space bar. And lastly, you can drop a bomb by holding a joystick button for over a second and then releasing it or using the letter Z. I find that a hybrid keyboard and joystick approach works best. I tend to hover my left ring finger over the Z key and use the joystick for the rest of the controls. Keyboard controls work fairly well too, but bombing the factories becomes more difficult as the game's difficulty progresses, and using the Z key is a quicker way of dropping bombs. There's five levels of enemies in Raid on Bungling Bay. One, the radar. They have no firepower, but they also coordinate the attack of enemy aircraft. Two, the supply tanks and gunboats, both of which are fairly harmless and only pose a minor threat. I tend to ignore them, but they're also the supply lines for the factories based on their colors. So the gunboats and the factories will share colors when they're, they're meant for one another. Number three, the guns and missile turrets. The gun turrets are slightly more deadly than the tanks and gunboats. If one is in close range to a factory, you should probably destroy it. However, the missile turrets are a required target. They are incredibly pesky and deadly, firing heat-seeking missiles. The uh, Number four are the white and black jets. Black jets are fairly harmless to your helicraft. I don't even think they can carpet bomb your 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 aircraft, but they are incredibly pesky towards your aircraft carrier. You'll get a warning that tells you to go defend your aircraft carrier when they attack. The white jets aren't as deadly as the missile turrets. Their their strength isn't as is high, um, but not by much. But they're more prevalent and more persistent, and sometimes you'll have multiple of them swarming around you. Be sure to dispatch as many of both of those as you possibly can. And then number five is the battleship. The battleship's sole purpose is to ruin your day either by destroying your aircraft carrier or blowing you out of the sky. It's best to sink it as it's being built in the docks on the northeastern point of its island. Because once it's launched, it can fire multiple heat-seeking missiles at one point. Plus, it seems to surround itself with white jets and gunboats. Your overall goal is to destroy the six factories run by the war machine, but how you go about that depends on your approach. You can make a mad dash and attempt to destroy all the factories at a fast pace, only stopping to rearm and repair. I find that I'm only able to destroy about two or three of the factories before it gets too difficult and I have to succumb to lost lives. Or you can be extra careful, but end up having to return to your aircraft carrier constantly to defend it. I found an approach that works well for me. First, find a factory then carefully destroy the gun and missile turrets and radar around it. Then finally, bomb that thing out of existence. 
when the white jets circle you, fly small circles around the factory while bombing bombing it, almost your slowest speed. But as the game progresses, you'll need to pick up that speed because they get super persistent. I've never beat the game without cheats, though. But I'll regularly destroy four or five factories before the computer will launch a battleship whose sole purpose is to attack your aircraft carrier. But remember that it's a formidable opponent and is not to be taken lightly. It's usually when I start to have massive casualties. What ends up being the most difficult part of the game is that the enemy jets, turrets, and radar all respawn. If you target the radar points often, it'll make it so that the jets see you less often, but those radars respawn fairly quickly. It ends up being quite the balancing act, and if you're lucky enough, you'll finally succeed. Now that we have the storyline and mechanics of Raid on Bungling Bay over with, let's review it. Remember that each review will feature four categories. Graphics, sound and music, gameplay, and then we'll give it an overall score. Raid on Bungling Bay is another one of those early Commodore 64 titles. Its graphics are descriptive, but not quite well represented or even all that attractive. Artwork is non-existent, and the sprites are really quite bland. What is impressive, though, is the fluidity of movement and scrolling. Not many Commodore 64 games in the collection do it much better, so I give graphics a 3 out of 5 battleships. There is no music in Raid on Bungling Bay, and the sound is quite rudimentary, featuring pops for gunfire, fizz for explosion, and beeps for warnings. There's really nothing to get excited about here, but there's really nothing too grating on the ears. Unfortunately, sound only gets a 2.5 out of 5 battleships. Where graphics and sound are mediocre at best, Raid on Bungling Bay's gameplay is where it shines. It controls incredibly well and features deep gameplay. It starts relatively easy and ends up frantic towards the end of the game. Reading the instruction manual and the storyline only really add to its charm. One gripe against the game is that it can be incredibly brutal towards the end of the game. The computer seems to go on an all-out assault after you destroy the fifth factory. It could be nearly impossible, even with cheats. But gameplay still deserves a solid 4.75 out of 5 battleships. This game is a blast. Overall, this leads me to give Radon Bungling Bay a 4.5 out of 5 battleships. It is easily one of the best games on the system and belongs on a C64 fan's top 25 list. The Strike series of games on the 16-bit consoles and home computers are very much Radon Bungling Bay's spiritual siblings. This game is just as good. But good luck finding a real copy. It's easily found on the NES these days, but the NES version isn't half as good. But let's see what you guys had to say about it. Malfunction. Need input. Input. All right, right. You got it. Okay. 
Damon O'Gurley has a solid article about Radon Bungling Bay on his website, The Genesis Temple, titled Quirky and Weird C64 Radon Bungling Bay. It's a great read where Damon O compares the importance of uh, Radon Bungling Bay versus Simcopter, a title that saved Will Wright's Maxis company from bankruptcy. It also explores other odd intricacies of Broderbund's usage of the bungling empire in multiple other games such as Choplifter and Load Runner. His article is definitely worth a Google, and his website is easily worth a bookmark on your favorite browser. Ant Cassidy noted, Fantastic cover art. It's eerie, even to this day. Porea Porizan shared a video of him playing it about two years ago, but that led me into watching a bunch of his videos on his Retrohead YouTube channel. Definitely worth checking out. Jeff Cotterman shared where a hidden area of the map at one of the airfields where you can rearm yourself actually took advantage of that in one of my recent playthroughs. Ross Myers shared it was his first game purchase after receiving his C64. Good choice. David Romer remarked, a classic, the difficulty ramped up the more factories you destroyed. I remember being shocked when I got jumped by the fire jets the first time. It was quite frantic at the end, defending your carrier, especially when the enemy battleship was complete and left port. Total elation when I finally beat it. Well, congratulations for you. Radon Bungling Bay got mad love from Daniel McKee, Roger Helfers, John Mark Hardcastle, Aaron Reed, Sean Kirk, Michael Downs, Martin Holtman, Denny Haynes, Sean Stevenson, Peter Perfetto, Sean Hatley, Ivan Radomir Perrick, Gregory Hammond, Sean Huckster, Luca Giglio, Gavin Jones, Michael Goldman, Marco, ooh, Ruo Kangas, Mark Green, Wayne Melders, Espen Skog. Is that the same Skog that runs a website? Kevin Castiles, Mike Dixon, Doc Mosh, Angela Weirden, Joe France, Dave Van Wagner, Timothy Michael Johnson, and John Steele III. What a kick-ass name. Thank you, everybody, for your feedback. And you know what? Nobody mentioned that they disliked this game. Very nice. I'm not back in five minutes. Just wait longer. Project Firestart is a survival horror action-adventure title exclusively released for the Commodore 64 in 1989. It was designed by Jeff Tunnell and Damien Sly of the software house Dynamics and published by Electronic Arts. The Dynamics team is responsible for such C64 titles such as Stellar 7, F-14 Tomcat, and the brilliant Caveman Olympics. Jeff Tunnell would also design one of my favorite all-time point-and-click adventures, Rise of the Dragon. Electronic Arts is easily one of the greatest publishers for the Commodore 64. They published such epic titles such as Archon, 
Skate or Die, Mail Order Monsters, Mule, amongst many, many others. And a little side note, I've written articles on the blog Vintage is the New Old in regards to both Dynamics and Electronic Arts. Interesting that they cross paths here. The Dynamics article mentions Project Firestart as well. You can check it out at www.vintageisthenewold.com. Project Firestart's storyline begins with the Prometheus, a research ship funded by the System Science Foundation, an agency of the United System States. Prometheus is orbiting around one of Saturn's moons, Titan, and is tasked to genetically manufacture durable laborers to mine titanium and iridium on various moons and asteroids. Because of the extreme danger involved, the practice of genetic reshaping is normally kept under strict supervision. Firestart's goal is to breed oxen, with some fungi found on an asteroid surrounding Titan. However, the Prometheus has gone radio silent. The worst is expected, but you, Agent John Hawking, have been sent to investigate and clean up the mess if necessary. Upon arrival at the Prometheus, Hawking discovers a horrid scene. The entire crew seems to be savagely killed, and large violent creatures have infested the ship. It's now your task to recover the ship's logs and save the last surviving crew members, if any exist, and set the Prometheus's self-destruct and escape to safety. Upon discovering the ship's logs, you'll uncover the deeds of Dr. Arno. He made further changes to the creature's DNA that made them blindly aggressive, all in the attempt to develop a race of super-soldiers. Now the creatures have developed the ability to asexually reproduce. And if you read the mission briefing, you had to leave your trusty firearm behind in favor of a weak laser rifle. And this sounds like a perfectly horrible scenario. As for game mechanics, the game screen will detail your health, your weapons charge, and will feature a clock that's also used as a countdown timer. The game is played with joystick controls with added keyboard commands to change weapons, view your inventory, save and load games, and also you could pause the game. It's a surprisingly sharp presentation, all in which we'll cover in our review. The Prometheus is a rather vast ship featuring four levels, most being either quite large in size, incredible in detail, or being hugely important. You'll trigger small cutscenes that further the storyline, including the first discovery of a brutally murdered crew member, and also your first encounter with the large green aliens. Each area of the ship is quite important as well. You'll need to stay in contact with the command as you progress by communicating from the bridge. You'll need to save Mary, a crew member who is in cryogenic sleep after sustaining an injury. Eventually, you'll encounter a nearly indestructible white alien, but I don't want to spoil too much. It's that compelling of a storyline. And now that we've examined that storyline and the mechanics of Project Firestart, let's review it. Once again, we'll detail our reviews in four different categories, including graphics, sound and music, 
gameplay, and then we'll give it an overall score. And graphically, Project Firestart is stunning. The art styles might be borrowed from some of the best sci-fi films of the day with obvious homages to Star Trek and Alien and Disney's The Black Hole. It's shocking how great this game looks. Each room is crafted with extreme detail. There's not a single screen of this game that doesn't impress, except for some of the the, the cut sequences. But this yields still one of the best, if not the best looking game released on the Commodore 64. And I give graphics a full 5 out of 5 freaky alien oxen. The sound and music of Project Firestart is not incredible. But they are totally appropriate for a jump scare or two. As well as developing the proper tension this game is portraying. You won't be adding the theme music to your best of C64 Sid Tunes collection. But it gets the job done. Sound and music get a 3.5 out of 5 freaky alien oxen things. As for gameplay, Project Firestart is not a cakewalk. There are numerous areas that you can explore that are completely meaningless. And the combat system isn't inspiring by any stretch of the imagination. And that's why I didn't cover it. The load times can be simply awful. But what the game did was release this new genre, this specific genre of survivor horror game into the market and on the most unlikely of home computers at that. Project Firestart's development started in 1987, really at the heyday of the C64. But by the time 1989 came around, the Commodore Amiga was on the market and MS-DOS computers were becoming a whole lot better. But let's get back to the gameplay element though. In Project Firestart, the weapons are sparse and the enemies are aplenty. That is a survivor horror game staple. There's storyline arcs that make the experience worth the effort. And despite the fairly sloppy controls, gameplay deserves a 4 out of 5 freaky mutated invisible white alien oxen things. And that leads me to an overall score of 4 out of 5 awfully terrifying, incredibly persistent, murderous alien oxen things. Project Firestart is ambitious and beautiful, terrifying and tense, and though it doesn't garner the highest score, it is definitely worth the playthrough and the experience. Now let's see what you had to say about it. Malfunction. Need input. Input. All right, right. You got it. Okay. Darren Mart said, It's been many, many years, but here's what I remember. At first I was like, hey this actually ain't that bad and the atmosphere is pretty great and then a certain moment happened i won't say exactly what that scared the living daylights out of me and it never really let up after that it was one harrowing moment after another ranks up there with forbidden forest on the horror charts and you know what uh <laughs> forbidden forest scares the crap out of me too <laughs> john farrell said 
one of my all-time favorite games for the C64. Scared the crap out of me as a kid. I had a blast watching my kid get the crap scared out of him when he played it. (laughs) This game set the scene for modern games like Dead Space. It is really a pioneer in the horror gaming genre. Matt Allen shared... It's certainly one of the earliest, if not the earliest, survivor horror game title in terms of the tropes we associate with the genre today. Lone wolf, underpowered, low ammo levels, jump scares, only saving at terminals, and an in-game backstory to discover, etc. When the original Zap review came out, I didn't have a disk drive. I forgot about the game until around 1993 when a call to one of the mail order companies here in the UK might have been Wizard regarding an order that hadn't turned up revealed that they were having a fire sale of their old C64 stock. And as the game I wanted and paid for hadn't arrived, they subbed any other games I wanted for the same value instead. So the guy read out the list, Project Firestart, and that was one of them. Having remembered the previous review, I said yes, amongst many other titles. So it was bought for three pounds. Wow. The rest is history. Definitely one of my favorite disc-only games for the C64. Ivan Radomir Perik question whether Firestart was one of the first survival horror games, mentioning games like Alien and a, and a couple others. Well, historically, this is really one of the first games that kind of developed that element that Matt was talking about, where you, you're a lone wolf and you're underpowered and you have low ammo levels. They, some other people commented too, that then technically, you know, like Pac-Man would be. And I'm like, no, 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 no. This, this is a specific genre. It's a specific feel. It's meant to, to drag you into a state of kind of despair at the same time as being terrified. So, and uh, Jan Fell had the funniest comment of all. He said, Project Firestart bleep my pants, comma, eight, comma, one. <laughs> Kenneth, Kenneth Gagnon and Mindshadow FSB also shared for their, their love for the game as well. Uh, thank you, everyone, for your feedback. Well, folks, that's it for another episode of the Commodore Chronicles podcast. Thank you so much for listening and all of your feedback. It's been greatly appreciated. Our next episode won't be out till until early to mid-March, and there will be an episode of the Retro Gaming Bygones podcast in between this and the next episode of the Commodore Chronicles. And on that next episode of the Commodore Chronicles, we're going to review one newer title, Sam's Journey, and a classic title, The Amazing Spider-Man. Be sure to check out the feeds on twitter.com forward slash c64 chronicles and also on facebook.com forward slash c64 chronicles and you can also send your feedback to commodore chronicles at gmail.com and you know what get out there play your commodore it is definitely worth the load time (laughs) 